Okay, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and let's go. I got a lot of scripture here this morning. So let's go to chapter 20. And just keep your Bibles with you because I'm going to walk through a lot of scripture this morning. I'm just going to start with one passage. Chapter 23, actually, verse 11. Acts 23, 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, being Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Can we say amen? I want to talk about Paul's experience of being shipwrecked. Paul has a shipwreck experience in the chapters that come after this. But to get there, I felt I needed to build the groundwork and let us understand why it happened, what was his predisposition going into the shipwreck and all that. So I'm going to go back into chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 and show you what is happening with the Apostle Paul. Now, now here's my premise for this whole thing. Storms... We face storms sometimes in life. Sometimes we face storms because of our own bad decisions. But then other times we face storms and we didn't do anything at all to deserve the storm. We just walked into the storm. And so either way, I think this will be a help to you and be a blessing to you. So I'm going to use the Apostle Paul's experience of going into the storm as a metaphorical teaching of how you and I handle storms of life. Amen? You don't have to raise your hands, but anybody been through any storms recently? <laughs> yeah. So what's happening in the apostle's life is this. He's been an amazing missionary. He's traveled to the Gentile nations all around the Mediterranean. He has had, uh, we categorize it as three different missionary journeys. And then he's bound and determined to go back to Jerusalem. He's bound and determined to get back to Jerusalem. He's carrying an offering he wants to take to the Jerusalem church. And he has some traveling companions that he wants to take to Jerusalem with him. And so it's interesting, as he goes along the journey back to Jerusalem, he's warned not to go. And this became super puzzling to me and has had me stumped for a couple weeks. So he goes, first of all, to Ephesus, and in chapter 20, if you want to look with me, he's at Ephesus, and as he's getting ready to leave there, he gathers the Ephesian elders around him, and he's saying goodbye to them. And in verse 17, he says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 22. And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, 
saying that chains and tribulations await me. The Holy Spirit is telling him. How is the Holy Spirit telling him? Well, it's obviously through prophetic people who are telling him this is what's going to happen to you if you do go. So he journeys on in chapter 21, and they land in Tyre. Tyre would be modern-day Lebanon. And they land in Tyre, and there they meet some Christian disciples and said in finding the disciples in verse 4, we stayed there seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So he leaves from there, and he keeps going ends up in Caesarea. Now they're getting very close to Jerusalem. He ends up in Caesarea in chapter 21, verse 8. And the Bible says, On the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven from Acts chapter 6, and we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now this is the second warning prophetically. And he told the Ephesians, I've been getting this message in every town I'm going in. So what does Paul do? Well, verse 12 it says, now when we heard these things, so obviously Luke's in the we. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up with to Jerusalem. Don't do it. Don't go. And then Paul answers, and he said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Isn't this fascinating? So my question is, did he disobey the prophetic words by trucking on to Jerusalem? Was he disobeying what God was saying? And my conclusion is he wasn't because I don't see where... The Bible says, the Spirit of the Lord says, thou shalt not go. But it was just saying, this is what's going to happen when you do go. So his brethren were begging him not to do it. But he has, forgive me for this analogy, but like Clint Eastwood faith. (laughs) Go ahead and make my day. It's what I... I hear that in the background, don't you? It's just like, he's much of a man. I love it. And so it started me thinking, what, what, what got him? To, what, is, what is his disposition? What's his uh, MO here, his modus operandi? What, what is he working from? What's in him that's so strong? And how did he get there? What, what are his motivations? What are his motivations? So I could read a megaton of scripture here that sounds just like this from Paul's writings. Let me just show you a glimpse or two. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. 
Paul said, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true and unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. In other words, I've been through it all. I've been through it all, and it hasn't stopped me yet. For 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. I don't even understand that verse. Like, it's hard for me to even process that. Then he goes on, Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He knows through everything I'm going through, even when I'm beat down and when I'm struggling and when I have issues, I know He always shows up strong. This was His disposition. This was his disposition. He had died to the world. He had died to self. It didn't matter anymore if he lived or died. Matter of fact, he said in one place, I would rather just go ahead and die. That way I could just get on with this thing and it would be much better. But for you guys, I'm staying here and hanging around, I guess. And I'm telling you, once I started thinking about it, that was his disposition. That's his heart. And when you get a man to that point or a woman to that point, they're dangerous to Satan's kingdom. Because they're not worried about reputation anymore. They're not worried about all the fluff and pomp and circumstance. They're just, they're just solely sold out to what God has called them to do. And when you get to that point, you can do some damage to the enemy's kingdom. Hallelujah. Because you're not afraid to do whatever God says do. And I think Paul was to that point. I'm here. I realize that my life is not my own. All that matters now is what God has called me to do. That's my determination. That's my motivation. So let's turn now to chapter 22. And let's look at an interesting speech he gives to the mob that's trying to kill him. So here's what happens. He makes it to Jerusalem. Once he gets to Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he goes sees the Christian brothers. He goes sees James, the brother of Jesus. And while he's there, James and the rest talk to him and they say, Listen, man, now that you're here, everyone in Jerusalem knows who you are. And when you get out in that crowd, they're going to come after you. So why don't you do this? Why don't you take these brethren right here who have made a vow to God, probably a Nazarite vow, which was 30 days or 90 days, you would make a vow, shave your head, go to the temple, pay a certain vow, and then you were released from the vow. It was a vow of consecration. They said, why don't you take these guys to the temple, go in and pay the vow with them, therefore you'll show all the Jews that you still believe in the law of Moses and you're still practicing it. So he says, no problem. He shows up on Temple Mount with these guys and he goes into the temple getting ready to pay the vow 
and all the Jews see him and they mob him and they attack him and they start beating him. And before he's beaten to death, the Roman commander of the forces realizes what's going on, runs to him, rescues Paul, takes him back to the Roman barracks to keep him safe. While there, Paul and this guy start having a conversation in Greek. Because Paul grew up in a Greek-speaking town and he could speak Greek as well as Hebrew. And Paul talks him into allowing him to speak to that mob. Let me talk to them. You know, that's the way Paul was, fearless. Because if you go back to Ephesians chapter 19 and 20, he's in Ephesus and there's a amphitheater, not an amp, there's a theater full of people shouting to the goddess Diana and against the apostle Paul. I've been in that theater. It can seat, or Colosseum, it can seat 20,000 people. And Paul was outside saying, let me in to talk to them. They're saying, no, you need to stay on the outside, bro. He was fearless. So he says, let me talk to them. So in chapter 22, verse 1, he stands up on the stairs and he speaks in Hebrew to all of this, these Jews who are trying to kill him and this Jewish mob. And out of this, I'm going to pick three different motivations for his life that I think you and I need in our lives before we face a storm. I'm going to call it the prerequisites for the storm. These are prerequisites. If we have this disposition... And these motivations, when we face a storm, we're going to be able to face it and make it through it. Can somebody shout amen? amen? First thing that happens, chapter 22, he stands up and he starts speaking to them and he tells them of his own testimony. He says in verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near to Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered and I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke. And so I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. The first thing Paul had as a prerequisite was he never forgot the day of his transformation. He never forgot his testimony. He always would share his testimony. That was the watershed moment of his life. It was the point of turning in his life. It was what changed everything and gave him the motivation to face everything that he faced. He could always remember the day that Jesus came and appeared to him in post-resurrection form, blinding him with light. He was blind until Ananias came and laid hands on him. He said, scales fell from my eyes, and there I could see. And he said, now Paul, rise up and be baptized. He was baptized. Later on, we understand he's filled with the Spirit according to Corinthians, and he was made a true Holy Ghost-filled New Testament saint. So here's my deal. If we walk into storms and we don't know the Lord... God help us. Because then it's just up to you. Your own ingenuity, your own ability, your own wherewithal. You can muster up to get through the storm. But if you walk through the storm and you have Jesus in the boat with you and you have a testimony of transformation, how God has changed your life, and you can go back to that moment or that time when God transformed your life, you are now 
entering storms in a totally different way and with a totally different perspective. Now you're like the Hebrew boys who walked into the fire and they didn't say, we are for sure coming out of this. They didn't say that. They said, King, our God is able to bring us out of this thing. But even if He doesn't, we're still not going to serve your idols. And they walked into that fire and when the king looked down, he counted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And somebody else was in the battle with them. Oh, hallelujah. Why? Because they understood. They knew Him. They had had an encounter with God. They were raised knowing Him. Come on, if you've been born again, you've been filled with the Spirit, God has touched your life and transformed your life, you walk into the storm already on the winning side. You've already won before the battle begins. You walk in... Having this thing, and, and I'm not saying, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not making light of the storms of life and how difficult they are and things we walk through. We walk through some stuff. Come on, y'all. When we get to heaven, there's going to be some people who walk through some stuff to get there. Yeah. I was just thinking about this morning, the Ukrainian church that's facing it right now. And our brothers, our friends in Ukraine, 260 or so IPHC churches there, and we know some of those folks. What they're facing right now, 100,000 Russian troops at their borders. I mean, come on. And we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be there with people who've walked through terrible times like that, or people from Laos, or from the underground church in China, or from North Korea, who have served God under persecution. I mean, I don't know that I'm worthy. I'm only worthy by the blood to stand in the room with those folks. Come on. But if you're walking with Jesus with you and you enter into the storm, you know it's going to be all right because he's in the boat. Remember the story where the disciples got out and they got in the storm on the Sea of Galilee? But Jesus was asleep in the boat. I mean, have you ever figured that one out? This is, this is kindergarten level theology, but I just think he was asleep because he already was the master of the seas. So what are you going to do to the master of the seas? I don't care if the boat does like a kayak and flips over. He's going to bring it back. And we're going to, if we're going to the other side, bless God, we're going to the other side. But the disciples were flipping out and panicking. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus is like... <laughs> oh, okay. Peace be still. And the disciples look around and go, What manner of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? If you got that man in the boat with you, you're going to make it. Come on, you're going to make it. Come on, punch your neighbor and say, You're going to make it. If, if you remember nothing else from this sermon today and all this great biblical work I've done, <laughs> remember, you're going to make it. Oh, hallelujah. First motivation, you got to, you got to hang on to your transformation. Second thing he did is he never forgot his calling. He goes and he tells them, he says, Then he said to me, verse 21, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So as soon as this straight-up Pharisee 
from birth trained in the Jewish tradition of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. Soon as sat at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. He said, I, that's me. And as soon as God called him, he gave him a mission that would totally blow his mind. Now I'm sending you to the Gentiles, to the Goim. I'm sending you to the nations now. How radical must that have been to Paul that he received this? What are you talking? I don't even want to be around. I'm not even supposed to be around the Gentiles. What are you talking? About? No, you're going to go now, and you're going to take my word to all the Gentiles. So what did he do? He fulfilled the calling of God, all through the cities of Asia Minor into into Greece, into Macedonia, and we believe eventually into Italy and into Rome at the end of the book. So he's, he's fulfilling. Some believe he even made it to Spain because he had a desire to go to Spain, according to his writing in the Romans. And we just, we, we just see he fulfilled what God had called him to do. He never lost sight of the calling because here's what happens. When a storm comes, it'll shake you down to the foundations. It shakes you down to the foundations of your faith, is, is, this, is this real? Is this Christianity? Does prayer really work? Does it mean anything to have faith? Is God going to answer? Does God care about me? Does God love? Why am I in this mess if God cared about me? If He really loved me, why is this storm come? Come on, have you been there? It comes to shake you down to the foundations of your faith. And then it comes to shake you and try to dislodge you from your calling. Because let's face it, We're all called to Jesus. That's our first calling. We're called to Christ and we're called to be conformed into His image. That's the ultimate calling. But out of that pursues all of these other vocations that we can pick up in life. Maybe God is calling you to be an inventor. God is calling you to be a school teacher. God is calling you to be a missionary. God is calling you to be a teacher. God is calling you to be a lawyer or a doctor or a business person or a farmer. There's, I believe in vocation. And I believe God has called us all into different vocations in this world. We just need to fulfill the call that He's placed on our lives. But as we go into our realm of vocation, and now that we're born again, we must do it as a calling and as unto the Lord. No wonder He went up to fishermen and He said, Now follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's some people in here going to be farmers of men, painters of men. Oh, hallelujah. Lord bless you. <laughs> you know, it, this is interesting. I, so I went and planted a church in uh, the year 2000, 2001. I went and planted a church in the Washington, D.C. area. In 2009, I closed the doors on that church, and, and we left. And it was the craziest thing. And we had a lot of success during the years up there and did some cool things and helped some people along the way and saw some people's lives transformed. Helped plant an ethnic church, an African French-speaking church, and we just did some really cool stuff. Did a lot of mission work, did a lot of revivals, helped, prayed for a lot of people in our house. But in the end, I shut the doors on it. And so I knew God had called me to preach the gospel, and I knew pastoring was part of that, because when I was about, I was 19 or 20 years old, and I was praying in my room one day by myself, and I felt the Lord speak to me and say, turn to Jeremiah 3.15 and read. 
and I didn't know what it was, so I turned to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, and it said, I will give you pastors according to my heart, who shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And I knew that God was confirming what I was feeling stirring in my heart, what my pastor was seeing on my life, and I, I knew there was, a, there was a confirmation coming to preach the word. But when I went through that storm and closed the doors on that church, man, did I have to fight for that. Because everything came in, I mean, all these voices came saying, you're really terrible at this. You need to go do something else. Now, I was painting houses on the side, and I knew I wasn't called to that. (laughs) And I was pressure washing decks, and I was for sure that wasn't my calling in life. I've got scars to prove it. But I really wrestled and really wrestled. That thing was the storm tries to unseat your calling. But let me tell you, brother or sister, you're in good company. The Bible is absolutely filled with men of God who went through storms and held on to their calling and didn't let it go but fulfilled everything God had spoken to them to do. And some of them didn't have any success as we would judge success. But the great thing is, God hasn't called us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful. Come on, somebody. I'm going to say it again. God hasn't called us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful to what He said do. Let me give you a few examples. Ezekiel was confined to his house and not able to speak until God allowed his Allowed it. He said his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. But he remains faithful to the calling. He was told to lay on one side for 390 days and then on the other side for 40 days. God told him to cook his food using human dung, but then he decided to allow him to use animal dung instead. God told Ezekiel his wife would die and he was not to mourn, weep, or cry. But he remained faithful to everything God had said do. Isaiah was told to walk naked for three years. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawed in two and killed while hiding in a hollow log during Manasseh's evil reign of terror. He was forbidden to marry. His persecutions became so bad he wished he had never been born. On and you look at the calling of Isaiah. Isaiah, who here I am, send me, Lord. Okay, you're going to a people who hear but won't hear. You're going to preach to a people that's going to be so hard, you're going to spend your whole life prophesying, and they're not going to listen to you. But I am calling you, my son. Faithful. The Bible is filled with people who were faithful, 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 even when asked to do some incredibly difficult things. Jonah was asked to go to the people who were basically the ones committing genocide against his people. Go to those and declare the word of the Lord. So what did Jonah do? He went down to the boat dock and got him a ticket for the opposite direction. But he found out that doesn't work either. Because God can shake things up and get you back on track to where you're going to do what He called you to do. Then in the end, He declares the word of the Lord that this whole place is going to go down in judgment. Everybody's going to be judged, declares the Lord. Hallelujah. (laughs) 
And then it didn't happen because they all repented. And God had mercy on them. So what did he do? Went up on the hillside and pouted. Think about Hosea's calling. How would you like to have Hosea's calling? Go take a woman from whoredom. (laughs) In other words, go marry a prostitute and she's going to be unfaithful to you and then you're to go down and get her out of this other man's house and bring her back. And it's all an analogy of how much I love Israel and how I'm going to go rescue Israel back. You know what Hosea did? He went and did what the Lord said do. Come on. God's got some people who haven't forgotten their calling and do exactly what God says do. Listen, my brother. Listen, my sister. Don't get derailed. Don't get unseated from what God has called you to do. Keep after it. Even when you don't feel like you're making any progress, you keep going after the thing that God has called you to do. And those nights when you're laying in bed and you want to quit, when those voices come and start knocking, telling you to quit, it's no good. You're not making any difference. You say, do this. Come on, just do it. Come on. Just just, devil, you can just talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. <laughs> you just say, too late, devil. You came too late. God's already called me. I've already said yes. It's a done deal. I'm going to declare the word of the Lord and I'm going to do what God has called me to do in this life. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. Because when we get home, we're going to stand before the king and give an account of how we've been faithful to what he's called us to do. Is anybody being encouraged? Give me a wave out there this morning. All right. One more thing I see. In the next chapter, as this whole thing un- unveils, the, the commander of the Roman forces takes Paul to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the ruling authorities of Jerusalem as far as Jewish law went, filled with Sadducees and Pharisees. And as soon as they get Paul in there as a witness... One man walks up to him and boom, punches him right in the mouth. That's how the meeting began. (laughs) And then Paul was no dummy. Paul looked around that room and he saw it was split between Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul had been raised and trained a Pharisee. Pharisees believe in resurrection in the end. There's going to be a resurrection in the end. Sadducees do not. So Paul says, you know why I'm here? Because I believe in resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like, well, this guy can't be that bad. And they get in an argument with the Sadducees. And the place starts going up in smoke with these two groups arguing with each other. And Paul makes it out. (laughs) And then the, the, the... Commander of the Roman garrison brings him back and just says, just have him flogged and that way we can satisfy the Jews and be done with him. Well, flogging in Roman times was not something you wanted to go through. And before that happens, Paul again says, hey, (laughs) would you do this to a Roman citizen? And the commander's like, you're a Roman citizen? He said, I had to buy my citizenship. uh, Paul says, no, I was born a Roman citizen. So he says, okay, we're going to send him to Caesarea. And he takes him by night, armed guards, horsemen, 
under the cover of darkness and sends him to Caesarea. Okay, but in that, in his, in that Sanhedrin meeting, and then when he goes before Agrippa, Festus, and Felix, there's a thread, there's a theme working. He keeps mentioning the hope of the resurrection and that he's being persecuted or imprisoned because he believes in the resurrection of the dead at the end. Also tied to he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. So I thought about it. Why was that such an important deal to Paul? And I think it was so important to him that it became a key motivation in his life. That not only did he not forget his testimony, did he not forget his calling, but he didn't forget his future. And he knew in the end he was going to be part of that great resurrection. And no matter what happens down here, no matter how bad it gets, we've got a shouting day coming after a while, folks. That we're going to make it. That there's going to be a resurrection. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. The Bible teaches that the Christian church will rise. Those who have died will rise from the dead. And when the Lord comes, if we're alive, we're going to be transformed and caught up in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Bible says there's going to be a general resurrection of all living, all dead people who have lived. They're going to come back and stand before the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. Everybody's coming back. Wow. Everybody's coming back to be judged. And those of us who are believers, we're going to be resurrected given a new body And Paul said, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we're going to be given a new body. And I wondered why, why, if our spirits have already gone back to heaven, why does God have to come back and get this old body? You know, you know, and I came across this recently and preached it here. I believe that I believe because God's into redeeming everything. And in the beginning. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them to live forever. Sin destroyed that. So God's coming back in the end, resurrecting the bodies, and now they will, we will live forever in a new transformed resurrection body. So if you're in the storm, my brother and my sister, take hope. Take courage. Because there's a day coming after a while. Hallelujah, where we're going to have a great reunion. And the Lord's coming after us Himself with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And the trumpet of God's going to sound. And we're going to be called up. Hallelujah. It might be in the morning. It might be in the middle of the day. It might be in the middle of the night. But I know one thing's for sure. Jesus is going to come again. This same Jesus you saw go away shall return again in like manner. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. Hallelujah. That doesn't set your wood on fire. It must be wet because I'm telling you what, there's a great celebration when all of this stuff's going to be over with. There'll be no more storms. There'll be no more wars. There'll be no more famine. There'll be no more hospitals. There'll be no more funeral homes. There'll be no more COVID. There'll be no more ICUs. It'll all be a thing of the past. Hallelujah. There is a great resurrection day coming. Come on, give the Lord a shout. Come on, give him a shout. Hallelujah. Paul knew it. He preached.
preached it. He believed it. Do what you want to. I, you got, I got a day coming y'all don't know anything about. Oh, hallelujah. Do what you want to. You remember they, when Paul went in one city and they beat him till he was dead? They said the man's dead. So they dragged him outside the city, left him for dead. The Christian brothers came up and found him and picked him up. And he's like, oh, wow. Let's get back to it. Got right back on the evangelistic trail. He's being mobbed. I mean, beat beat down in the streets. And he gets clear. (laughs) And they bring him back. He says, let me speak to them. So let me out on the stairs and let me talk to them. That man knows his life. He's dangerous to the enemy's kingdom. You get to that point. God, you say do it. He'd run into a attack hell with a water pistol. Come on, stand with me. We're going we're gonna to pray right now. I'm going to read one thing to you. And these are, this is the writings of Paul. I read this every gravesite that I do. And he says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For since man, since by man death came, by man Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward those who are Christ's at His coming. He said, so also in the resurrection, there's a resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural and there's a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. And then he said, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? And O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who always causes us to triumph. But thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Jesus Christ. Come on, come on, you're a winner. Go ahead and give him a shout of praise. Thank you so much for joining us online. And I hope the message was a real blessing to you. You know, eternity is a real thing. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. According to the scriptures, you spend eternity in one of two places. First of all, heaven, Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Or number two, in hell. Uh, Jesus talked about the rich man who went to hell and was in great torment. He was begging Abraham to send someone, a messenger, to tell his family. Well, listen, you're hearing the message today. Eternity is real, and you're going to spend it in one of two places. So why don't let's decide right now, me and you, that you're going to spend it in heaven. How do you do that? You accept Jesus into your heart. Open up your heart and say, Lord, come in. Cleanse me of all sin. I accept you as my Lord and take the throne of my life as yours. 
Okay? So let's pray right now. Just pray with me right where you are. Just repeat this. Father in heaven, I I remove myself from the throne of my heart. And Jesus, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of all sin. Wash me in your precious blood. And I accept your sacrifice for me. And I thank you, Lord, for cleansing me, for saving me, and for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray. Can you say amen right where you're at? Hey, thank you for joining us. And please come back. Get in. Get in the Word. Get in the flow of the Spirit. And uh, we're just blessed to have you with us and look forward to seeing you the next time.